Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Decoding the Unknown, the show where we decode the unknown. I'm here, one of my writers, in this case, Danny. Thank you, Danny, has written me a script. The Westfall Encounter, Australia's most famous UFO sighting. Gotta love these. The format of the show is, I've never read this before. We're going to read it, react to it, explore it together, dear audience. Come along on this journey with, I just realized I'm not wearing a jacket. I always wear a jacket in these shows and now I'm not. And I realize I feel a bit naked. I'm not going to put it on. It's warm today. Let's crack on. On April the 8th, 2006, a few dozen former pupils of West All High School in Melbourne, Australia, gathered for a touching school reunion that was unusual to say the least. I feel quite sad in a way that I've never attended a school reunion. I'm not sure if anybody has ever bothered to organize such an event for my old school year or if I just didn't get to hear about it because everyone forgot about me after I quietly dropped off the educational radar at about the age of 13. God damn, Daddy, you gotta continue. I think now you've got to be in school until 18, right? When I was a kid, it was 16. You could leave school at 16 and get a job i didn't leave education until i was like well into my mid-20s it's gonna ride that wave of not working as long as possible but i've never been to a school reunion either i don't know i mean i might the problem is i like left home and then my parents moved house and then they moved house again and it's like i didn't write to my old school to be like yo here's my updated details if you want to reach me here is where you can and it's like what am i supposed to use like my old hotmail address that they have on record of course not no one's checking that shit how do they keep it i'm sure the people who now live in their house get because it was a, a what we call a public school in the uk which i think americans call private schools and despite being very expensive to go to they'll still be hitting you up for money like years after you've left so i'm sure they're like trying to hey where's simon hey whistle boy whistle boy have you thought about giving some money it's like bro did you not get enough money off my parents when i went there which i mean i mean i guess not because they're, they are charities i guess but also, did you not get enough money? <laughs> but no, that's a very long way of saying that I've never been to a school reunion because I don't think I've ever been invited. When did I graduate? Or well, like, sorry, graduate. I sound so American. When did I leave secondary school? 2005. Oh my God, we'd be coming up on 20 years. That's f***ing insane. That's insane. I do occasionally get emails from like people I went to school with and stuff. Being like, oh my God, I was just on YouTube and I saw your face. No, like, oh, I haven't thought about you in 20 years. How's it going? <laughs> But maybe I'm not missing that much. After talking to my mates from other schools who made the effort to attend reunions, I was left with the impression that the events largely boiled down to everyone trying to make out what massively successful lives they've led since limping feebly out of school with zero qualifications. I would have at least hoped to have seen a long-winded showdown between the former school bully and the former school wimp who had been waiting patiently for his wrench after spending the last 20 years in the gym. Ah, I think that's what everyone imagines a school reunion to be like. I think it is just people like talking themselves up a little bit like oh i'm the manager of this or it's like oh i'm a a partner at this firm and you're like okie dokie <laughs> i don't know i just don't give a shit like i don't know what anyone's doing because i don't have facebook either i gave up on facebook years ago for the betterment of my life and you should too and it's like i have no idea i've got like one of my mates from school like i regularly hang out with and sometimes he'll update me on shit that people have been up to and i'm like okay cool cool good to know <laughs> i suppose i could get on facebook and see but i just don't care that much i'm really sorry it's like i don't know i'm busy i got my own life and it's not like i didn't like school school was fine like it's just 
I don't know. They've moved on. <laughs> Jesus. So should everyone. It's been 20 f***ing years. <laughs> you wouldn't see anything like that at the Westall High School reunion, though. By all accounts, this first reunion was mainly a highly cordial and civilized affair, but the topics of conversation were curiously limited. There would be no lively retellings of the time Sniffer Jenkins accidentally set his hair on fire with a Bunsen burner, or the time Mr. Bottomley got chased out of the classroom by a runaway dog. This is one thing. It'd be quite nice to go, like, I'm not a big reminiscer. I'm not a big, like... Generally, when I have conversations, I'm not someone who's like constantly reminiscing because I find it a bit annoying when people do that because I'm like, can't we talk about something new rather than just, ah, oh, remember the good old days. But I would go to like a reunion and be like, I'm sure I get reminded about all sorts of shit that happened that I've entirely forgotten about, which would be kind of fun. There would have been only one incident on the minds of all the attendees of Westall High School reunion. That morning in 1966, when the flying saucer landed and nobody was ever allowed to talk about it for years. You know how the shit usually goes down. A flying saucer is spotted by one or two enthusiasts who set up camp in the wilderness after hearing rumors of sightings of strange activity in the skies. These starry-eyed UFO spotters are now the only two people on planet Earth to have witnessed the extraterrestrial craft with their own eyes, but everybody dismisses their story as attention-seeking fantasy, apart from a small online group of similarly dedicated truth hunters who once saw a flying saucer hovering over Bogner Regis. This is what makes the Westfall encounter so strikingly different from the usual fair. We're not just talking about one or two witnesses who are somewhat lacking in credibility and good hygiene here. Yeah, they are, are they? It's like, why? You know, you like picture ufologist, enthusiast, somebody thinks they've seen a flying saucer. It's like, yeah, I don't know why, but in my mind, it's just they're going to smell. They're going to smell a bit weird. They're going to be a bit weird. It's like conspiracy theorists. They're just a bit weird. Like people who are like, oh, 9-11 didn't happen. It's like, oh, we didn't land on the moon. It's like, they're always a bit unusual. There's something a little bit unusual, just like off about them, right? Right? Except for the JFK people, because I'm one. Like, it's a bit weird, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe I'm that person. Maybe people think I'm weird. It's entirely possible. We're talking about approximately 300 witnesses, the majority of whom were in attendance at Westall High School on that quite incredible morning. And yet, despite this unusually high number of witnesses, the story received relatively little press coverage before falling completely silent for decades. Some of the witnesses claim to have been threatened into keeping their mouths shut, and we have still yet to hear the results of any official investigation into what may be one of the most infamous UFO sightings in Australia and indeed the world. Why is it infamous? Did the aliens come down and like probe people's bottoms? I don't think so, because if 300 people had their bottoms probed by aliens, then that would be a bigger news story. It wouldn't have just disappeared. Or maybe it does. Maybe all of those real ones do disappear because the NSA are like, shh, keep it quiet. I don't know what the Australian NSA is. What's the British GCHQ in the UK? Australia. Well, they're, they're, they're like a part of that Five Eyes group, which is the most sinister sounding shit that I've ever heard of. <laughs> Pine Gap? There's somewhere called Pine Gap, right? I saw a TV show about that. Which I didn't get that into, and I only saw like a few episodes. Or maybe it was one of those TV shows that was really good, and then you discovered that they cancelled it after one season. You're like, oh, f this, because I want to actually know what happens. What's that one with Sawyer from Lost, where they all are like, he's got a family, and they're all living in California, probably Los Angeles, because, you know, it's cheaper to film there, because that's where everyone is like acting and shit. And it's like they get walled off in some alien compound or whatever. But then. Me and my wife were like watching this show for like however many seasons it was, and I'm like, oh my god, it's getting close to the end of this show, and there's a whole lot of stuff that they really need to tie up. And then it gets to like four episodes from the end, and they're just making it more complicated. I'm like, oh my god, you really got a lot to tie up. And then I look it up on Wikipedia, and they're like, oh yeah, it just got cancelled after season four, and nothing is ever answered. And I'm like, well, that was a waste of like four seasons, wasn't it, you assholes?
It's like those movies where it's like, you know, there's that something has destroyed the earth or whatever, and it's all about the survivors. And then it gets to the end, and there's a word for this in like cinema, like the golden briefcase from Pulp Fiction or whatever. It doesn't matter what's in it, and it doesn't matter what's destroyed the earth because it's the story of the survivors. And whenever I finish one of those movies, I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake, what was in the briefcase? What destroyed the earth? I watched this whole movie, and you're not even going to tell me? You fing heads. I know it's a cinematic thing or whatever, but fuck you. Tell me what destroyed the earth. I don't care if it was like radioactive rabbits. Just fucking tell me. <sighs> so, was it a hoax? A case of mass delusion? A sinister government cover-up? Or a genuine sighting of a flying saucer observed by hundreds of people in broad daylight? It's a story which feels weird right from the very beginning because Westall has never even existed. Well, it kind of does, but not officially. The location we're actually talking about is Clayton South, a small and unremarkable Australian suburb populated by around 13,000 citizens sitting around 13 miles southeast from Melbourne city centre. I always remember how to pronounce Melbourne, Melbourne, because once I called it Melbourne, and everyone who's Australian was like, Might, 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 Melbourne, Melbourne. Why am I going American? It's really hard to say Melbourne in an Australian, Melbourne in an Australian accent. Australian. Melbourne, Melbourne. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's awful. My Australian accent's bad unless I'm saying, throw another shrimp on the barbie. Let me interrupt today's episode to tell you about our fantastic sponsor, and that is Every Plate. Sizzle your way into the new year with $1 steak for life. You what? Simply add a 10-ounce ranch steak to your weekly order for just $1 per box while your subscription is active, which uh, raises the stakes for dinner, doesn't it? That's their joke, not mine, but I but I do like it. <laughs> Looking to budget your food expenses in the new year? Save big and eat great with America's best value meal kit. Their meals are cheaper than your average fast casual meal. So ditch the takeout to save money while still enjoying fresh, satisfying meals. They're the easiest way to eat affordably. Put the money you save towards making 2024 plans. Yeah, it's a good idea. You don't wanna like waste money on food. Like takeout is just like average quality food for over average prices, isn't it? And that's where every plate comes in. That's gonna sort you out. In 2024, you can count on every plate to make mealtimes easier without compromising on quality. Every plate recipes include only the highest quality ingredients, including sustainably sourced seafood that meets the Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood rankings. So you know your meals will be fresh and flavorful. So get a meal for $1.49 plus $1 steaks for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering the code 49decoding. Subscription must be active to qualify and redeem $1 steak. Get started with EveryPlate for just $1.49 per meal plus $1 steaks for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering the code 49decoding. As I said, subscription must be active to qualify and redeem $1 steak. Thank you very much to EveryPlate for sponsoring and now back to today's episode. The area sometimes go by the, goes by the unofficial nickname of Westall, as this is the name of the main road in the suburb and the local railway station. And it was a name also adopted by the local school, known as the Westall Secondary College, but back then as Westall High School. The school hosted approximately 600 pupils back in the day, which might make you wonder why the witness count wasn't considerably higher. But as most versions of the story tend to indicate, the incident occurred during lesson time, and we could only assume that around half the pupils were not aware of what was going on outside or were fortunate enough to have Misery Guts teacher who stopped them from joining in the panicked throng. Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones, there's a spaceship landing on the field. Sit down. The bell has not rung. 
Do Americans really? When that? It's a question I've always wondered. Is it? I always see in TV shows when the bell rings, does everyone just immediately get up and leave the classroom? Because the bell ringing in my school was just an indication that the lesson was over, and then the te- you're just gonna have to sit there. And if anyone tried to like get fidgety or whatever, the teacher would specifically say, "Sit still. The lesson's not over." And then they'd tell you when the lesson was over, and hopefully it wouldn't cut too much into the next lesson that you'd have to run to if they were eating into like for five minutes of classroom transfer time. It's very difficult to piece together a single cohesive account of that morning, though, as many of the witness accounts vary significantly. Very little was said about the encounter at the time, and it's only in relatively recent years that so many witnesses have taken the decision to finally share their memories of the saga for the benefit of anniversary news reports and Australian TV documentaries. Oh, God. Memories from the past are notoriously shite, so let's see how this goes. One voice in particular was heard louder than the others. Andrew Greenwood was a science teacher at Westall High School in the 1960s, and he seemed pretty much the only witness who gave a private interview at the time to American physicist Dr. James E. MacDonald, the audio of which was made public decades later. Andrew Greenwood also has been the most prolific contributor to documentaries and news reports in more recent years, and so it's the former science teacher's testimony that we'll use as the foundation to recount the most widely heard version of the Westall encounter, mixed in with occasionally conflicting contributions from some of the other witnesses who have since dared to come forward to relive the day of the flying saucer. The UFO hovered over Westall High School on the morning of the 6th of April 1966. The first discrepancy of many that we have to contend with is the exact time and what the pupils of the school had been doing with themselves directly before the flying saucer spun into view. Some witnesses claim that the incident occurred during recess at around 10.15am, which would have meant that all of the kids would have been outside smoking cigarettes and sniffing glue. But in that case, it would seem unlikely that at least half the kids never even spotted it. Others suggest that it happened during lessons at around 11 a.m., which makes you wonder how many kids were just staring idly out of the window at the exact right time. Well, you just need one of them, and he'll be like, Yo! What the f*** is that? And then everyone's gonna, What the f*** is that, mate? And then everyone is gonna run over to the window and be like, Crocky! The most likely scenario, as given by teacher Andrew Greenwood, is that the encounter did take place during lessons at around 11am, but some of the kids were enjoying the glorious wonders of physical education outside in the schoolyard. Oh god, I hated physical education. P.E. What do you call it in America? Gym? Jesus Christ. I would like purposefully forget my. I'd be like, oh no, I forgot my gym kit. And they'd be like, well, Whistle, this is lunchtime detention for you, isn't it? I'd be like, oh no. <laughs> so I don't have to do an hour and a half of gym, and then I just have to sit in a classroom for 30 minutes and do my homework that I'd otherwise have to do that evening? Okay! Oh no, what a shame! They didn't think that one through, did they? And it was this group of students who were temporarily distracted from their games of cricket, netball, hockey sticks, and I don't know, maybe bull riding when they came. They became the first group to spot the craft from another world. Andrew Greenwood reckons that PE teacher Miss Jeanette Moore from New Zealand was amongst the first batch of witnesses, as she was alerted to a new presence in the skies from her shrieking students. Andrew himself was tucked away. I just imagine the students just going, Oh my god! Just having a mega freak out. It's all Andrew himself was tucked away in a smelly science classroom at the time, but his lesson was rudely interrupted by a hysterical student from Jeanette Moore's class who had come running back inside the school in panic to announce that aliens were hovering outside the school. Andrew initially amused that the students had just come up with an extraordinarily imaginative way to bug off PE. But his lesson spiraled out of control as the students raced to the window to get a look for themselves before everyone started making a stampede to the door with Andrew Greenwood in hot pursuit. By the time Andrew got there, Jeanette Moore and three other 
other male teachers were attempting to get the kids back into the school over concerns for their safety. While some of the children complied, the majority of them were now out of control, chasing around the playground to get a better view of the craft as it slowly glided south towards a local wooded heath known as the Grange Reserve. The object was widely described as a cup turned upside down on a saucer, which was about twice the size of a car and bore no obvious markings of any kind. Oh, for some reason in my brain so far, it's been absolutely massive. Like it's been the size of a field, like some giant coming down. But it's actually just a van size. Which always makes it like more likely to be an experimental military aircraft rather than, you know, an alien spaceship. Right? Some say that it was grey or silver, while others reckon that it had a kind of purple hue. Some say it was completely silent, while others claim they could hear a quiet vibrating or throbbing noise. Rather more significantly, most say that there was only one flying saucer, whilst others, including second form student Joy Clark, suggested there were at least three. Andrew Greenwood recently gave his own observations to Seven News Spotlight in 2021. To quote him, I can remember looking into the sky and seeing these things, and just standing there absolutely transfixed. It was a grey, almost cylindrical or cigar shaped object which moved with some degree of precision in the sky i saw a craft a mechanical object intelligently controlled hovering above me wait did you just describe it as cylindrical or cigar shaped they, they previously described it as a cup turned upside down on a saucer did you see different things in the same seven news spotlight feature former student terry peck who was just 11 years old at the time revealed i could feel heat and hear this buzzing sound i could see purple lights all around it i was quite stunned to see it because i didn't know what it was it was like what you see in stories about flying saucers it was a general consensus that the craft was darting at incredible speeds, almost like a dragonfly trapped in a bottle. It would hover ominously in the same spot for just a few moments before suddenly blinking away from view and then quickly reappearing in either a much higher or much lower spot above the school. Well, that just sound that does sound pretty amazing. That doesn't sound like experimental military aircraft. That sounds like some science fiction shit right there. But another element of the sighting that not everyone can agree on is the number of planes, presumably piloted by humans, that were on the flying saucer's tail, with numbers varying from between five to zero. Whilst a few witnesses can't recall ever seeing any other craft, most claimed that there were also between three to five light Cessna planes in the air. Alright, I was just assuming there'd be military craft, but they're just like Cessnas. <laughs> what are they doing? This sight wouldn't have been unusual in itself, as the school was only around three miles away from from Moorebin Airport, and you could regularly spot pilots engaging in training exercises in the skies above Clayton South. But these Cessna planes were clearly on a different sort of mission altogether. I don't imagine the military employs many Cessna aircraft. I don't know if I've been in a Cessna aircraft. I've been in similar aircraft to Cessna. And they they're 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 kind of slow. <laughs> you know, I'm assuming they're like light Cessnas, little Cessna. 120s? What are they called? 180s? Something like that? The little ones? The training ones? It looked as if they were attempting to circle the strange craft, but ended up becoming embroiled in an almost comical game of cat and mouse. Andrew Greenwood recalled in his private interview taped in 1960 that five Cessna planes were attempting to pull off some pretty complicated maneuvers in their bid to apprehend the flying saucer, while ideally not crashing into each other during the process. What is going on? <laughs> like, how are you going to do it? You're just going to reach out your hand and grab it? It's a flying saucer! It's clearly superior to your Cessna. But it was like the sheep were just taking the piss with the new sheepdog. Every time the plane got close to the object, it would rapidly accelerate it away and then reappear in another spot of the sky where it would cheekily hover for a few moments before the planes came back for another go. This apparently went on for a full 20 minutes, during which time there were now up to 300 pupils in the schoolyard getting increasingly excited, along with a few teachers who were getting increasingly frustrated with the kids who were refusing to obey orders and go inside to attempt to hide from the pending alien invasion. The headmaster, sorry, 
we're in Australia, so we should say principal. Uh, it's weird in, Amer in, in Australia, right? Because they call it like a secondary college or whatever, which sounds British, but they have a principal rather than a headmaster. And was something else? Did they call it gym? No, they called it PE. Australia's like this weird mix of the UK and the US. It's like bizarro, the bizarro land. I've never been there, but I've seen like Australian TV shows and you know, it's a weird mix of America and Britain, isn't it? Uh, Principal Frank Sambleby appeared to have been napping for the last 20 minutes and had missed out on most of the commotion. By the time he came furiously marching outside to demand the pupils return to their classes with immediate effect, the alien craft and indeed the Cessna planes had disappeared from view, heading somewhere in the direction of the Grange Reserve. It seems that the voice of Principal Frank Sambleby carried a bit more authority than the voices of either Mr. Greenwood, Ms. Moore, or any of the other teachers out in the yard at the time. The vast majority of students, either in fear of Mr. Sambleby or in resignation that the flying saucer had disappeared anyway, strolled back into the classroom. But not all of them. Some of the more rebellious souls decided to jump over the school gates in an attempt to follow the craft, although some members of this rebellious gang were also becoming hysterical and shrieking with fright. One former student, Mary Eastwood, recalls that she and her friend ended up sitting on a fence that they'd just scaled and cried their eyes out in the belief that they were witnessing the end of the world. Other pupils were reported collapsing in sheer terror before they could reach the Grange. You have sheer terror about something. Is that really something you're just like desperately running towards until you collapse? When I'm in sheer terror of something, I run away from it because I'm a coward. The few who were brave enough to make it all the way to the Wooded Heath, a small group which now included not just errant pupils but a few residents and local farm workers whose curiosity had been aroused by all the noisy drama, were witness to the final reported sighting of the flying saucer. The select group of people claimed to have caught a close-up view of the alien craft as it hovered above the trees before suddenly darting off into the far distance in a northwest direction, never to be seen again. It left behind around five of those Cessna planes in its wake, all of which presumably gave up after having lost their target and flew back home in defeat. But the craft left behind something else too, a perfectly circular, flattened imprint on the scorched grass. Some might even call it a crop circle. This was a particular interest to woodwork teacher Gary Shepard, who hadn't actually witnessed any of this alleged activity. He was probably one of the stricter teachers who had barked to his class to ignore all the fuss outside and get on with constructing their wonky shoe racks on wheels. But he did claim that he later saw the scorched crop circle for himself, and although Mr. Shepard never fully got on board with the UFO story, he did reveal that he knew the area like the back of his hand and never understood how such a perfect circle had formed without any nearby evidence of vehicle, animal, or human tracks. And he has never seen anything like it since. The circle apparently wasn't around for very long, though. When one former student, Kevin Hurley, went back for another look a few days later, possibly to convince himself that he hadn't just dreamt up the whole thing, he was surprised to discover that the Grange Reserve had been cordoned off. He attempted to sneak in for a closer look, but was apprehended by a group of men in military uniform who had been wandering around the site with strange equipment, possibly including a Geiger counter, before downing tools for a moment to tell this young, curious kid to piss off out of the way. By the time the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society rolled into town to examine the evidence a few days later, the grouchy soldiers had gone, but so had the crop circle, along with pretty much everything else. They found that the entire field had been burnt to a crisp, sparking suspicion that the military had deliberately tried to get rid of any roots of remaining evidence after they'd finished messing around with their Geiger counters and telling nice little kids to piss off. However, the farmer who actually owned the land tells a different story. He reckons that he was getting fed up with local kids returning to the scene and trampling all over his fields, and so he burned it down himself to discourage nuisance trespassers. Yeah, that sounds fair. I mean, what sounds more likely? The sea I mean, both of these are entirely possible. So... 
I mean, fine. But whatever way it was, it was burned. I'm not thinking aliens. I'm thinking while the military are covering something up or a farmer's just got pissed off with all the kids. I think the farmer one slightly more likely, military one less likely, alien spacecraft than the military are covering up. Basically, 0% chance of likelihood. That's a good little tip to bear in mind for the future. Discourage potential burglars by burning your house and all of your belongings to the ground. You'd have thought that an incident on this scale would have whipped up a massive press frenzy, but the Australian papers were remarkably quiet, whilst the rest of the world just ignored the Westall encounter. The only Australian paper to get a little bit excited about the story was the Dan Danong Journal, who ran it with on their cover for almost two weeks. One of their most memorable front pages featured the bold headline, Flying Saucer Mystery, School Silent, What Was It? This particular article noted how all attempts to get any further information from the school about the incident had been met with a playground wall of silence, a point to which we'll return in a moment. Other articles from the Dandenong Journal over this two-week period reported how the police and government officials had strongly denied that any such incident had taken place, whilst an army spokesman was quoted denying any kind of military presence at all within Clayton South. Many years later, a guy who claimed to be a contract photographer for the Dandenong Journal claimed to have supplied the paper with photographs of the scorched crop circle, but for reasons that he never understood, the photographs were never used. The only other paper to take the slightest bit of interest in the story was The Age, but they had a rather more subdued take on the matter. They went with a relatively small article buried deep within the pages, which bore the less than tantalizing headline, Object, Perhaps Balloon. Yeah. It's the sort of title that I'd give this video on YouTube if I was being honest and I didn't want anyone to ever click on it. Object, Perhaps Balloon. <laughs> How many YouTube views? Six? Yes! <laughs> This piece examined how a large group of pupils had witnessed an unidentified flying object, but it was more likely just a weather balloon. The age had seemed convinced that such a weather balloon had most definitely been launched that morning from the town of Laverton, which is just 30 miles away from South Clayton, and had probably been blown across the school on the westerly winds. Okay, mystery solved. It's a weather balloon. If any explanation of the incident can be deemed as official, it's usually this article from the age which gets whipped out to explain what really happened, but it's far from definitive. Yeah, it's far from definitive, but it also seems like by far the most likely thing so far because you know what's less likely f***ing aliens isn't it the biggest newspapers only bothered to reference the story at all in satirical cartoons poking fun at the whole silly saga but it did look for a while as if the story was going to make it onto television when a crew from channel 9 turned up at the school gates to interview the students and teachers who had witnessed the westall encounter Former student Joy Tig later recalled the initial buzz of excitement as some students flocked around the school gates to deliver their versions of the story in a bid to get their faces on the idiot's lantern. She also recalls the crushing sense of disappointment when that miserable killjoy principal Frank Sambleby turned up at the gates, possibly accompanied by police officers, to order the students inside and demand that the TV reporters leave the premises immediately. It's not entirely clear where the segments of this thwarted report were ever broadcast on Channel 9. Some former students recalled that they saw the report in full on TV, the bit oh, where Principal Sambleby turns up to ruin the party. Others swear blind that there was no such broadcast. A more intriguing claim from some Channel 9 viewers is that a quick teaser for the report was briefly shown on a morning news bulletin, along with a promise of a full report which would be broadcast in the main evening bulletin, a promise which was never honored. Channel 9 themselves don't seem to remember any such report was broadcast. While a film canister labelled as the Westall report was later uncovered in their archives, the canister was rather frustratingly found to be empty. This obviously sparked further suspicion that the tape had been seized by the government after they'd finished burning down the farmer's fields. Like, if they're going to seize the tape, they're not going to leave an empty case saying the tape was in here, are they? They're just going to take the canister with the tape in it. Because otherwise this happens, doesn't it? They're the government. 
I mean, I was going to say they're not incompetent. <laughs> so often they are, but not in this kind of shit. With the conspiracy theories, right? The whole point is that they're super competent. However, TV networks around the world were still notoriously sloppy at preserving archive material back in the 1960s, during which period many truly historic broadcasts were wiped to make room for another episode of Bill and Ben, the Flowerpot Men, which is a real show. <laughs> which I do not remember <laughs> at all. I haven't thought about it for 30 years, and I remember Bill and Ben, the Flowerpot Men. I don't remember much about them, but they were flowerpot men. For some reason, them being sausages also enters my mind, which I guess isn't true. I'm gonna look up what they look like, and I'll be like, oh, they're not sausages. Why do I think they're sausages? <laughs> no, they're not what I imagined in my mind. For some reason, I mean, they were like this, but for some reason, they had sausage heads in my mind. Oh my god, what a weird show. <laughs> oh yeah, and there was that weird flower thing. What is going on? <laughs> If the UK networks couldn't even be bothered to keep a hold of their 27-hour broadcasts of the moon landings in 1969, you can see why an Australian network wouldn't be too fast about preserving a report of a school principal getting all stroppy. If this story already feels a bit far out, it does, Danny. I think the weirdest element is yet to come. The manner in which the authorities and the school in particular allegedly responded to the UFI sighting was bordering on the hysterical. Just why was Westall High School so keen to close down any communication with the media? Principal Frank Sambleby apparently made his feelings known in a school assembly held on the morning following the encounter. Now, assemblies were always a monumental waste of time back in my old school, in between chanting the Lord's Prayer and hearing updates about the latest tuck shop high star old headmaster, Mr. Utley, would often treat the whole school to a thought-provoking tale of morality for us all to ponder over the rest of the day. I think in my school we had chapel twice per week, and then we had assembly once per week. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with Wednesday being assembly, if I remember. I mean, I'm sure it changed over the years. But assembly was never about moralizing. Assembly was always just like, this thing's happening, that thing's happening, this is happening. And then there were like sports reports where it was always like, oh my God, who cares? It's like, the 14 plus football team went over to another school where they played three matches. Their matches were won 3-2, 3-2, 4-1. And it's like, okay, well, and then it'd be like, and now, 16 plus girls netball and you're like god why am i listening to this i couldn't care any less i can vaguely remember him telling us one particularly brutal parable about a father who found that his young daughter had been viciously attacked whilst the beloved family dog loitered nearby with blood all over its mouth oh my god danny what sort of horror stories did they tell you in school wasting no time in serving swift justice the enraged father chopped off the dog's head with an axe let me guess it wasn't the dog it was only later that he realized that his daughter had been attacked by a human intruder and the loyal pet dog had sustained injuries while chasing the intruder away and saving the daughter's life that was it that was the whole story thanks for sharing danny i feel like i've heard this tale before i'm not sure what valuable life lesson we were supposed to take away from this other than maybe always take a moment to think about things before chopping off your pet dog's head with an axe some of the younger kids ran out of the hall in tears of wretched despair to which the visibly annoyed headmaster responded by telling them to grow up and start at stop acting like little babies <laughs> responsible headmastery right there i think the chanting of the lord's prayer came as something of a surprise relief that morning <laughs> I, I i swear to god i probably still know all the words of lord brett lord prayer despite being so far from religious and just because you say it so many times at school just like when well, it's our father who art in who gives a f <laughs> 
But if I thought school assemblies were bad, I'm not sure what I'd have made of this assembly held by Principal Frank Sambleby at Westall High School on April the 7th, 1966. It had already been speculated that the school principal's late arrival in the schoolyard that previous morning had been more down to fear than laziness. According to some observers, he seemed genuinely frightened about what was going on and refused to come outside until the UFO had gone. Really? During the subsequent assembly, some students remembered that the principal was flanked by mysterious men in dark suits, although not everyone shares the same memory. Sounds like a made-up memory, doesn't it? But every witness agrees on the fact that Principal Sambleby wanted to make one thing clear. UFOs did not exist. UFOs do exist. It's unidentified flying objects. It's any object in the air that hasn't been identified. Alien spacecraft also probably exist. Are they anywhere near us? No, of course not! Nobody had seen anything remotely strange the previous day, and even if they had, they were mistaken. Even so, students were now forbidden from discussing the matter, and they would find themselves in deep trouble if they ever opened their mouths to the media. Well, that's gonna work great until, like, uh, year six or whatever it is. Leave. They're just gonna be like, well, okay, yeah, you know what the principal of my old school could do now? all, because I'm free! It's like immediately upon leaving school, you're like, you know what? I can't. No more detention. <laughs> no more debits. No more being told what to do. <laughs> Until I enter employment and get told what to do by a boss. But he can't put me in detention. We have rights. God, leaving school. Like, a school wasn't mad in my school. But then going to university and being like, holy shit. I can just do what I... If I don't go to class, there's no consequences to my action other than just not knowing shit. It's like, oh my god, what? I can drink a beer at three o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> on a Tuesday? <laughs> shit was real. Like that first year of like freedom at, at university, I'm just like, oh my god. Like sometimes I still taste that. I'll just be like wandering around the supermarket and just be like, I can buy anything I fucking want. Anything in the supermarket I can afford. Just that, and it's a regular supermarket. It's not like that's a rich person's game. It's not like they've got plasma TVs or whatever. It's just like, yeah, if I'm on those chocolate bars, could f buy it. Want that ice cream? It's mine. Just that, that joy of just being able to do what you want all the time. That went for the teachers, too. In front of the entire school, Principal Sambleby reportedly announced that teachers would be at risk of losing their jobs if they ever mentioned the incident again. Former student Suzanne Savage remembers he didn't want to hear any more about this nonsense. We were not to discuss it ever again. So, just what the, was the principal so scared of? It could be that he just felt the incident was distracting his students from their studies and they should be knuckling down to serious work instead of trying to blag an interview on Channel 9. I think that's exactly what this is. Or it could have been that he was acting on orders from a higher authority. I think this is exactly what it's not. Maybe it had something to do with those mysterious men in suits or may, who may or not, may not have been present at the school assembly. Andrew Greenwood certainly seemed to think so. After the science teacher had dared to disobey Principal Frank Sambleby by giving a very brief and not very insightful interview to the local press, Andrew claims that he was personally visited at home by two senior Royal Australian Air Force officers. Andrew was gruffly asked to recall his memories of the incident, but after he had furnished the officers with his tale, he was immediately told that he was mistaken about what he thought he had seen. Furthermore, one of the officers suggested that it sounded as if Mr. Greenwood had been drunk on duty, and that it would be wise not to repeat his version of events to the media if he wanted to keep his job as a teacher. Andrew Greenwood later stated, Absolutely, I was threatened. I was told I should not say anything about it. This wasn't the only thing 
that was deeply troubling Andrew Greenwood. Let's go back to the very first adults who have reportedly spotted the UFO. By the time Andrew had made it to the schoolyard that morning in pursuit of his overexcited science class, PE teacher Miss Jeanette Moore was already busy trying to shepherd the kids back into the classrooms and far away from the strange, scary disc in the sky. However, when Andrew later approached his colleague to compare notes about what they'd seen, he claims that Jeanette simply clammed up and refused to talk about it. Andrew also believes that there were at least three other teachers in the schoolyard on that morning who had witnessed the alien craft, but none of them were willing to discuss the matter with Andrew or even confirm that anything out of the ordinary had taken place. Which is weird, like, why would they go to all of the other teachers and be like, shh, don't talk about it? And, well, I guess they did go to Andrew, but then he came out later, I guess when his job wasn't being threatened or whatever, but then so would everyone else. Or maybe everyone else would just be like, oh, Andrew, it's nothing. No one cares, Andrew. I just think this is all nothing. Yet when Andrew approached the very same student a little later on, she refused to talk about anything at all, almost as if she had completely forgotten everything. Could it be that the teachers and students alike had been frightened into silence by the threats from Principal Frank Sambleby? It seems a bit unlikely that one principal could wield such an icy grip of power over an entire school. I mean, I suppose the teachers may have been genuinely worried about losing their jobs, but you're surely never going to stop hundreds of school kids from gossiping behind the principal's back about the day they saw a flying saucer. Not on this planet, anyway. Yeah, it's like, don't talk about it. All you're going to do then is not talk about it more when people aren't listening. Perhaps the other witnesses had also been spooked by visits from mysterious men in uniforms. Many of them wouldn't speak again of the Westall encounter until decades later. Or maybe some of the students were just keen to try and forget what they thought they had witnessed. During later interviews, a few of the former pupils claimed that they had found life very difficult in the weeks and months that followed, as their own family members refused to believe the wacky flying saucer story, and some of the students were beginning to question their own memories and their own sanity. They may have found it easier to just move on instead of regularly making themselves the targets of ridicule from their parents and siblings. Whatever the reasoning, a peculiar silence fell over Clayton South for many years to follow. Sorry, I'm getting a bit distracted here. I can't help thinking about that dog that got his head chopped off for being a hero. Ah, Daddy, how do you pull this story from like your memory banks? <laughs> a thousand curses on you, Mr. Utley. Well over 55 years later, we still have yet to hear any official explanation or even just a comment or acknowledgement from any government agency, which is often the case because the government agencies are just like, what? No, we don't have any records about that. That never happens. What are you talking about? And they're like, oh, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? And it's like, yeah, of course we would. We don't have anything. What do you want us to say? Yeah, we have something we're not telling you. Yeah, we have something. Here's the information. We don't have anything. What do you want? The closest we've ever got to a f an official investigation was briefly conducted by the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society. Uh, official investigation? I don't think the Victorian Flying Research or Society or whatever is like an official body of any sort. They're just a club. They're a research society. They're not the FBI, or Australian FBI, whatever that is. Ah, uh, but they uncovered little of value other than a burnt field, which may have once contained a crop circle. In more recent years, it's been left to news channels and independent filmmakers to try and track down some of the original witnesses and shed new light on the story, but the mystery remains unsolved. A particular note here are the efforts of Canberra teacher and amateur investigator Shane Ryan, who has been fascinated by the case for a couple of decades now and helped put together the Australian documentary A Westall 1966 
A Suburban UFO Mystery in 2010. Shane reckons that he's been able to track down literally hundreds of witnesses from that April morning in 1966, and he was the one who organized the first of several reunions in which dozens of former Pew students came together to remember how Principal Frank Sambleby really could be such a d at times. And yet I'm not sure his documentary or extensive research has brought us any closer to an answer. Shane seems to think the attendees of Westall High School were let down by authorities who refused to deliver any explanations and attempted to put a muffler on the whole incident, but he also now feels that this may have been largely because the authorities were just as stumped as everybody else. Yeah, like I said, it's like when you're like, hey, can you tell us more about this? No. Hey, why not? We don't know anything more. <laughs> They're not trying to hide anything, they just don't know. And of course, sometimes they are trying to hide something. But is it aliens? No! It's not aliens, it's like, oh yeah, well the weather balloon was an experimental aircraft. Oh, okay, cool. Like, Area 51 or whatever, where it was like, yeah, it's not a weather balloon, it was like some experimental jet. Cool, fine. The last we heard from Shane, he claimed that he may have tracked down one of the pilots of the Cessna planes that were attempting to ensnare the flying saucer, but all seems to have gone quiet on that front. Bearing in mind that the pilot was supposedly in a nursing home several years ago, I would imagine that Shane may need to get his skates on if he ever wants to secure that interview. So this leaves us with a pretty perplexing puzzle in which hundreds of witnesses all apparently claim to have been part of one of the biggest mass sightings of a UFO in history, and yet many of them can't seem to agree on the finer details or even some of the broader details. And yet despite this huge number of witnesses, who at least all agreed that they saw something strange in the sky, the story was never widely reported at the time and nobody in authority had much to say on the matter. Andrew Greenwood is still clearly frustrated today. He said, what really strikes me is that 55 years on, these people are very certain about what they saw. It's just beggar's belief that we've never had an official investigation. And flatly, I think there has been a cover-up. I really do. Meanwhile, former student Joy Tai would later be happy to have someone in authority, or perhaps even anyone outside the circle of school witnesses, believe her story instead of treating her like a fantasist. She recently revealed, quote, all we want is an answer. All we want is someone to say to us, yes, we know that did happen that day. It was a very extraordinary experience, but something definitely did happen that day. It wasn't your imagination. You weren't on drugs. You weren't drunk. It happens. Be like, Joy, chill. Just be like, someone just, just someone need to tell you it's a weather balloon? Just be like, it's a weather balloon. Is there a complete, even if I saw something like this and it was crazy, I'd be like, well, yeah, it's probably a weather balloon. Or whatever and everyone will be like bro how can you get over this day and i'd be like i don't know by just realizing it was probably a weather balloon <laughs> my brain is ridiculously logical i would certainly hope that over 300 pupils at the same school weren't all on drugs or on drunk on that same wednesday morning i might expect that kind of behavior from some of the teachers but surely not the kids i did initially suspect that somebody may have put something funny in the jam roly-poly and custard but uh, we can rule that out on the grounds that the incident happened in the morning so the students wouldn't have been fed yet it's often been suggested that the whole thing was just a silly hoax which got out of hand, but the sheer volume of witnesses would seem to make that extremely unlikely. Surely, at least one of them would have fessed up by now. I can't see 300 school kids managing to keep it a secret for over 50 years, and besides, not all of the witnesses were from the school anyway. So it looks like the Australian government has clearly been attempting to cover up a visit from extraterrestrials all along. Look. I know we're normally very dismissive of potential alien encounters on Decoding the Unknown, and rightfully so, Danny. And we prefer a more rational answer, which doesn't involve little green men preparing to assemble the mighty anal probe. And of course, we're going to be doing that in exactly a moment. But just for the record, I don't honestly feel that this time around I have any real right to just dismiss the alien craft theory out of hand. Well, I'm always like, 
show me some evidence that it was an alien craft right now it's just all speculation and it's like what well, is more it's infinitely more likely to be a military craft or a weather balloon or something with a rational explanation and i think a lot of the details around the edges like the burnt field and the cessnas and stuff are either people misremembering or irrational explanations like the farmer burning his field so people stop bothering him on his land yes it seems unlikely but if several hundred people really did all recall seeing an intelligently controlled aircraft buzzing around in the sky several years before i was even born who am i to say that they're all wrong i mean there's not much in the way of evidence other than eyewitnesses it may have been a bit more useful if the alien craft hovered into view at some point in the last 15 years in which case we'd all have been able to enjoy watching about 300 different videos of the damn thing on instagram but it didn't a solitary photograph did eventually surface but it wasn't actually taken on the same day this polaroid photograph of a supposed flying silver disc in the sky was apparently taken two days earlier around 10 miles from westall high school the victorian flying saucer research society has apparently examined the polaroid in great detail and confirmed that it's a genuine 1966 photograph which has not been digitally altered or tampered with in any way some of the westall encounter witnesses claim that it bears a resemblance to what they saw for themselves just two days later that's terrific but it's still a pretty weak polaroid of a small silver blob in the sky it could be interpreted as anything from a slightly funky frisbee to a pan lid that's just been lobbed in the air i don't think it counts as particularly compelling evidence something that really bothers me is the presence or non-presence of those cessna planes it's perhaps understandable in some way that hundreds of different witnesses may have slightly differing memories of the size color and noise of the alien craft but it's harder to understand why some people saw five cessna planes engaging in a game of cat and mouse for 20 minutes while others don't recall seeing any planes at all yeah that's probably the biggest mystery for me i'm really almost happy to chalk it up to someone being oh my god yeah remember the planes and people being like what planes you know flying around the thing being like oh yeah i guess i guess yeah yeah maybe maybe oh yeah there were planes you know the kind of like because one person says and then it gets out of hand but it is a lot it is a really big thing to get out of hand like i don't know what that's about i suppose it's possible that the planes only came into view a little later and so were only ever seen by a small group of the more insubordinate kids who were refusing to go back inside the school but no official records of planes in the area were ever found and moribin airport insists that none of their craft were anywhere near that area you also would have thought that if anyone had been trying to intercept an alien spaceship such a situation would have been handled by more serious military aircraft while rather than five light cessna planes from the local airport flown by five pilots who just happened to be hanging around before deciding to randomly chase the craft without requiring any permission to take off we'll return to the alien craft theory in a moment or five but there must surely be at least a couple of alternate theories to consider which are rooted in more earthly origins that early subdued report from the age paper appeared to give the most widely accepted answer when it glumly reported that the unidentified flying report was probably just a boring old weather balloon as we mentioned earlier the paper reported that the weather bureau had launched such a balloon used for meteorological research earlier that morning in the nearby town of laverton however i'm not entirely sure where the age was getting their information from it certainly didn't seem to be from the weather bureau simple weather balloons are hardly the sort of thing to be shrouded in secrecy and a local launch would have been documented somewhere in the archives but aside from that single mention in the age newspaper nobody has since been able to find a scrap of evidence that a weather balloon really was launched from laverton on that day that's not to say with any certainty that it wasn't a weather balloon but there's a noticeable lack of paper trail to suggest that it definitely was and again even without the paper trail I'm like what's more likely weather balloons which do exist or alien spacecraft which we've never seen in the history of the planet you know
Australian author, retired astronomer, and respected researcher of unidentified aerial phenomena Keith Basterfield went a little further with the balloon theory in 2014 when he was tasked with the mission of finding the most likely explanation from the, for the Westall encounter. Who tasked him with this mission? <laughs> What's your job? It's like, yeah, you need to go and find out about this alien spacecraft rumor from years ago. Who's paying for that? <laughs> Who's his boss? And he dug pretty deep until he came up with what he believes to be the most convincing answer. Keith reckons that it was a balloon of sorts, but no ordinary balloon. After sifting through the National Archives and making use of freedom of information laws, Keith discovered evidence of a joint program between the US and Australian Department of Supply, which ran between 1960 and 1969 from Mildura in Victoria. Project Highball, short for Project High Altitude Balloons, was set to monitor radiation levels in the atmosphere following the recent dodgy nuclear tests conducted by the British in Maralinga in South Australia. Each huge silver or grey balloon reached up to 100 metres in diameter and carried a hefty 300kg payload of snazzy atmospheric testing equipment. They were usually followed by light aircraft or a chase plane which tailed the balloon and remotely triggered its parachute via radio signals. Wow, that sounds like exactly what's going on. This big brain figured it out. Keith uncovered documentation which revealed that four Project Highball balloons, including one named Flight 292, were scheduled to be launched from Mildura on the day before the Westall encounter, and yet any follow-up paperwork revealing the fate of Flight 292 appears to have gone missing. Although there's a good 350 miles between Mildura and Clayton South, Keith's hypothesis is that Flight 292 was a rogue nuclear balloon which was blown way off course and ended up drifting over Westall High School the very next day. I'm down with this, Keith. This sounds extremely likely. One expert revealed that it wasn't too uncommon for highball balloons to drift astray, with some of them ending up in Adelaide, Canberra, and even halfway to New Zealand. And the description of the silver balloon certainly sounds reasonably similar to how some witnesses described the UFO lurking over the school, whilst the potential presence of the light aircraft chasing the runaway balloon would explain why some witnesses felt sure that the object wasn't entirely alone in the sky. It sounds pretty compelling to me, but none of the witnesses were buying into it. Why not? They reckon that they know the difference between a floating balloon and an intelligently controlled craft. This thing in the sky wasn't just aimlessly floating adrift, it was buzzing around at remarkable speeds and often hovering in a perfectly controlled, motionless position before shooting directly upwards into the air and zooming right back down again. Yeah, okay, if you saw that you'd be like, that's not, that's no balloon. But I feel this could be misremembering, like the misremembering combined with the reasonable explanation of the balloon. Could be could be okay there's no way that a simple balloon would have generated quite so much excitement and fear from over 300 kids yes but mass hysteria is also a thing one of documentary maker shane ryan's alternative theories is that the ufo was some kind of secret experimental aircraft which belonged to either the royal australian air force or the u.s air force yeah and also weather balloons are commonly said to be like you know oh yeah it's a weather balloon it's really an experimental aircraft. After all, this was during the height of the Cold War, whilst the Second World War was still a very recent memory. It could be the case that the military and the government were keen to silence the school, the media, and the witnesses, but not to hide any perceived threat of alien visitation. They were more interested in hushing up the fact that one of their secret military experiments had just gone completely tits up and almost crash-landed right into a high school in broad daylight. Yep. I'm pretty down with that explanation as well. However, Australia's aircraft industry had been scaled back considerably during the 1960s and didn't really have the capacity to produce pioneering new military aircraft. No, but America and Britain did. 
and they were allies and they were doing stuff with weather balloons right of course another nation such as the us or the uk could have been testing new experimental aircraft in australia bingo danny and i same page but any documents and designs of such craft would have long been declassified by now there is no known documentation for anything remotely resembling the descriptions of the silver flying saucer darting around at incredible speeds in 1966. besides you wouldn't really expect a top secret military experiment to be taking place on a sunny wednesday morning in a highly populated suburban area no but it went wrong that's the argument isn't it there is one final rational theory which was initially put forward back in the day when it appeared in the letters pages of the dandenong journal during the two-week period when they were covering the story a man who identified himself as a former navigator for the royal australian air force wrote into the publication to suggest that the object sounded not unlike a nylon target drogue a bit like a windsock these target drogues were very much still used in training exercises at the time the target drogue would be towed along by one plane as target practice for the other planes to chase and shoot at again sounds very reasonable sounds like exactly what could be going on whilst the royal australian air force has never confirmed the nylon target drogue was in operation over clayton south at the time the former navigator felt they wouldn't have felt the need to confirm or deny anything why should they he wrote they were probably carrying out a normal exercise and wouldn't dream that anyone could take a drogue for a flying saucer brian dunning from the skeptoid podcast is reasonably on board with this theory and it would at least explain the perceived sight of a bizarre cat and mouse game taking place in the skies yeah i think what was his name the guy brian agrees with the the military dudes oh maybe they don't say his name oh no no they don't i don't know whatever but i'm on board with this as well there are plenty of very reasonable rational explanations however brian has a slightly different take on the matter as he believes that the westall encounter could have been made up of two separate incidents occurring on the very same morning brian feels that the initial sighting at the school sounded very much like the students were just watching a simple weather balloon drift away slowly into the distance but the small group who broke away to try and follow the disappearing balloon ended up seeing something else entirely they now saw a bunch of planes chasing a nylon tar get drogue in a routine training exercise that's pretty clever that's pretty clever if that's what's going on this does sound a little overcomplicated to me and it's hard to believe that so much was going on in the clouds above westall high school at the exact same time in the morning we might as well throw in a hot air balloon a shooting star and an impromptu performance from the acrobatic display team the roulettes whilst we're at it and again the witnesses aren't again buying into any of this on the ground that a nylon target drogue looks and behaves anything like a hovering silver flying saucer for now it seems that many of the original witnesses are still convinced that they saw an alien spaceship on that morning and you can shove your silly windsock theories where the rings of saturn do not shine the authorities may have had nothing much to say over the last 55 years but at least the local council have recently decided to lean into the mystery and the intrigue if you happen to be anywhere near the grange reserve today you'll find that it's now home to a fun children's play space which rides under the banner of grange reserve ufo park launched in 2013 the park includes a massive ufo with funky twisting shoots stretching out of every corner along with some super cool alien wobble boards yeah like before i had kids i'd be like oh who cares like okay so it's a play park and now i'm like wow that sounds amazing my kids would be happy there for hours i must go there even though it's in australia <laughs> seriously it looks pretty good if i was a bit younger and not stranded at the other side of the world i'd take a look myself 
sod it i might do it anyway danny it's a really long flight to australia mate it's, it's like 24 hours it's really long it just feels a little surprising that a saga which has been shrouded in secrecy and radio silence for so many years is now suddenly the focal point of a local children's park we may not have any concrete answers to anything but at least we've got a metal ufo to play inside maybe the worst all encounter was just a particularly clever marketing teaser which took 47 years to reach the big reveal or maybe the alien craft theory is still the most compelling explanation that we have to go on for now after all we surely can't just arrogantly dismiss the testimony of over 300 people who witnessed the incident firsthand or can we i can't help feeling a little bit cynical over the fact that very few of those witnesses were adults there were presumably several teachers in the school on their day but the only teacher who's ever been happy to talk about it at great length is andrew greenwood no other staff members have ever corroborated any elements of his story including the sighting of the aircraft or the threats from grumpy principal frank sambleby and the men in military uniforms documentary maker shane ryan has apparently managed to track down a few other adult witnesses not connected to the school such as local residents and farm workers but not very many at all the overwhelming majority of witnesses to have spoken up about the incident were young children i should quickly say that i'm not trying to suggest that over 300 children are lying i'm not even convinced there were even 300 witnesses but i'll return to that thought in a second but i do wonder if at least some of the former students the relatively small number who turn up to school reunions and contribute to documentaries could be caught in something of a bandwagon effect yes 100% agree I think this is a major factor I messed up recently with an old schoolmate who I hadn't seen for about 30 years oh my lord <laughs> okay on my way to meet him I was feeling a bit nervous about how we might not have anything of value to say to each other after all this time but I needn't have worried it was genuinely an amazing experience as we literally just picked off from the exact same conversation we'd left hanging in the air in about 1993 and just carried on from there as if the intervening years had just been a summer dream that's kind of incredible <laughs> that sounds kind of fun but he did say something that made me ponder over how our memories can sometimes cheat us he asked me if i remembered the time that mr metcalf's belt snapped while he was on playground duty and he ended up dashing red face back into the school with his trousers around his ankles while the entire school pretended to run for their lives in mock terror i remembered exactly what he was talking about but it wasn't really that remarkable mr metcalf's belt did indeed snap but his trousers never fell down he just took off the belt and popped back inside the school for a bit but at the end of the day this incident has evolved into the story that my old mate seems to remember whilst by the end of the week it had evolved into an incident in which a trouserless mr metcalf was chased by a pack of angry wasps into the school duck ponds and it was a bit like the first gig by the sex pistols hundreds of people claimed to have seen it happen but only about 40 people were really there now if you were one of the pupils in attendance at westall high school on april the 6th 1966 would you really want to be one of the kids who was stuck in the classroom and missed the whole thing or would you rather be one of the kids who watched the whole incredible drama unfold and now has a story to tell again i'm not suggesting that all of the kids were just making shit up it could be the case that the story was inflated in their own heads over time some of them may have witnessed something slightly unusual if not exactly earth shattering on that day but this memory has grown into something else entirely over the years as stories from other witnesses have been shared and absorbed what may have started out as the sighting of something resembling a balloon gradually mutating into a sighting of a mighty silver disc which then mutated into the sighting of a frenetic battle between a ufo and several cessna planes which then mutated into a sighting of an alien craft landing on a wooded heath and the occupants getting out and asking for directions the nearest pizza haven another point to bear in mind is that very few of the witness accounts were contemporary barely anyone spoke up about it at the time except for science teacher andrew greenwood 
It wasn't until around 40 years later, when people started making documentaries about it, that other witnesses came together to hear each other's stories and share their own memories of something that happened four decades earlier when they were young children. These memories are going to be wildly unreliable, and this is why they differ, like the story with the teacher with the pants down. We never get to hear any new evidence, we just get to hear new memories long after the supposed event. These witness accounts may have been a lot more credible if they matched up with each other, but the often significant contradictions in the recollection suggest that people are supposedly remembering entirely different versions of the events of that day. How can we judge which versions, if any, are close to the truth? The actual number of witnesses is also a bit of a grey area. It's widely reported that there were over 300 witnesses either in the schoolyard or on the Grange Reserve. But again, not everyone can agree. Some say it was nearer 200. Some say it was less than 100. One interesting point is that if we go back to the very first report on the story from the Dandenong Journal, the article indicates that one teacher and several students saw the alien craft. That one teacher was presumably Andrew Greenwood, but there was no mention at all of Jeanette Moore or the other three teachers whom Andrew claimed were also on the scene. And just how many children is several? It could be 300, it could also be 50, it could also be 7. Yeah, I would definitely not say 300 or even 50. I'd be like, several children is like... Five to seven, five to eight children. That's what I would take from that. The number seemed to gradually grow over the years until it finally reached about 300, which would be about half the school. That itself sounds a bit dubious. Would half an entire school have been in a position where they could see the small segment of sky in which the UFO was hovering? And would so many teachers have allowed half the school to just get up from their desks and wander outside? It could be that the only pupils in the yard on that morning were the ones taking PE lessons and the occupants of a couple of classrooms which had windows that just happened to be facing the right direction. Whilst the Westall encounter is often made out to be one of the biggest mass sightings of a UFO in history, it's more accurate to say that a completely unknown number of witnesses were present. And what of the shady actions of Principal Frank Sambleby and the Royal Australian Air Force who allegedly threatened pupils into silence? Well, it's absolutely true that the principal held an assembly in which he asked students and teachers not to speak with the media, although it's less clear if he went on a rant about how UFOs do not exist or threatened to fire teachers if they disobeyed him. Bearing in mind that Andrew Greenwood did just that with no consequences, that does seem perhaps a bit unlikely. The principal himself gave a very brief interview to the Dandenong Journal explaining why he had banned pupils and students from talking to the press. He said, The flood of visitors and phone calls from the Air Force down to the Flying Saucer Association have interrupted the children's studies. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I thought. It's like, he doesn't want them doing this because it's like just a distraction. Just go back and start studying maths. Come on. That might be considered a fair enough more move from a school principal worried that his students were getting distracted by a circus. He very probably wasn't flanked by mysterious men in suits when he was giving his assembly speech, and in fact, not many witnesses, aside from good old Andrew Greenwood, have much to say about being threatened by the Royal Australian Air Force. While it's often reported that Westall High School and the Grange Reserve were swarming with military figures in the immediate aftermath of the incident, there doesn't seem to be any real evidence for this at all. Even if the government or military were keen to brush a sensitive story under the carpet, it feels a bit unrealistic that they'd even attempt to silence 600 school kids by using bully boy tactics. And it's not like a media blackout was ever imposed. Although most newspapers just didn't seem interested in the story, the Dandenong Journal ran with it for nearly a fortnight. Why would the government bother to threaten students and teachers from a school whilst allowing the local press to cheerfully bang on about UFOs for two weeks? They wouldn't, and it's a little bit ridiculous. 
I still think it's possible that Andrew Greenwood, who certainly seems to be the one person driving this story forward, saw something very unusual in the sky on that 1966 morning, along with a group of witnesses of undetermined size. And who knows, maybe it really was an alien craft from the distant planet of Flittertwinkle. We may never know for sure what it was that they saw. If I was a betting man, I'd be inclined to plump the Keith Basterfield story about the Hybel balloons monitoring the radiation levels in the atmosphere. Oh, wait! Um, no, I'm going for the other one about the drogue. The, the, the drogue? What was it called? The balloon that gets dragged along? And the, Ch the Cessnas were using it for, like, piloting skills or whatever? That's my one. I think that one. We know for sure that these balloons were being launched during this period, and they certainly would have attracted attention from people on the ground as they were absolutely huge and looked pretty unusual and futuristic. We also know that the fate of one highball balloon launched the previous day is now unknown as the paperwork has gone walkabout. Mm, also an excellent theory. And of course, the potential presence of the chase plane tailing the highball balloon fits in with some recollections of Cessna planes circling the object, although I'm not sure if a chase plane would have still been tailing the balloon after it had drifted so far off course. Of course, it might have been helpful if anybody had bothered to launch an official investigation at the time. The lack of any real action in this area has naturally fueled all the theories of a government cover-up, but it seems as if the authorities just weren't particularly worried about it. And now it's too late to dig up a definitive explanation, as we can't trace all the documentation. But I would still feel inclined to believe that the strange object in the sky was the missing Flight 292 from the Hybel Project. Yeah, I think this is entirely possible. I also think the drogue theory is possible. I don't think it's aliens. Andrew Green Greenwood wouldn't agree with me, of course, but I suspect that he has been embellishing his own narrative for so long now that he's unlikely to be swayed by anything that doesn't quite fit with the fantastical story that he's been sharing for decades, allegedly. And I'm not sure if he or any other witnesses even want to hear a definitive answer if it doesn't involve either alien spaceships or a government cover-up of some sinister secret. I mean, if the object was finally revealed to be a balloon, what would they even talk about at the next school reunion? They'd probably have to start completely misremembering that time that Principal Frank Sambleby's trousers fell down and he got chased into a duck pond by a swarm of evil, sentient lawnmowers. Sounds a bit far-fetched. Well, you weren't there, man. And that's where we end today's episode of Decoding the Unknown. Thank you, Danny, for writing it. It's uh, been a pleasure to read. And I hope you enjoyed it as well, dear audience. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a review. Uh, if you're listening to it as a podcast, of course. If you're on YouTube, like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.